0: Good morning again. I just like greeting you over and over. It's great to see you. Um, we, uh, we've been going through a series here at Sanctuary through the book of Philippians. And uh, we journeyed through the season of Lent through Philippians 2 and spoke of humility and what it means to actually live out the way of the cross. And we find ourselves, if you want to flick to the next slide here, at uh, Philippians 3.10. And the writer Paul, who's writing from prison, is writing to this early church. Uh, one of the first churches, he says this, and he's talking about sort of his ultimate desire. He says that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. That I may be made conformable unto his death. There's something about what has happened In history, or at least according to the scriptures. That has actually caused communities after communities after communities in Rome to be transformed. To see people actually want to identify with this Jesus who has gone to his death and been raised again. And it's this powerful thing that centuries later we are still gathering and rallying around Easter and Good Friday. We're rallying around the cross and the resurrection. And I think it's important for us to note, it's important and vital for us to note that at least for some, the story of Easter has had a profound change on their lives. And so in a, in a pluralistic society, in a world where many of us uh, adhere to, your belief is great, that's great that you have that, it's great that you have that tradition. It's important for us to at least identify that for some, for this writer Paul in particular, this was everything. He was willing to go to his death. In fact, thousands were willing to go to their death for this reason, the implications of this event. In fact, we see the whole Roman Empire, for those of you who need an 11th grade history flashback, we see the whole Roman Empire make Christianity the sort of default posture and religion in about 300 years. So even history looks back and tries to make sense and explain how something could happen that quickly. I wanted to say that because as we charge into a couple of these ideas, I know because I have sat through them in my past, been in a place where I'm looking, listening to somebody talk, and I have already a number of predisposed ideas about what's going to be said and how it's going to affect me. And as Aaron just prayed, I just hope that we would actually be open to seek truth, The great thing about this area I've noticed, Rhode Islanders, but in specific like Providence, Providence County area, there's something of like a a hunger for learning. There's a hunger for openness and wanting to explore other ideas and I pray this space is one that's like safe for us to do that, even if it's in our own head. And my final kind of preamble before I jump in, I wanted to give you a few words about the Bible. And I just wanted to ask you a few questions. Because the Bible is really tough for some of us, a 2000 year old document to learn, and figure out how to actually engage. And, I, and these are the questions I would ask. Is this, what we see around us, what we touch and see and feel and smell, is this all that there is? Or is there more? Is life only limited to the physical material world and when you die, that's it, nothing more? Are you absolutely sure of it? Do you have proof, evidence, a solid rationale that there is nothing more? Are you totally convinced without a shadow of a doubt that you have no spirit or soul within you, that you are simply the sum of your blood and cells and neurons and bones? Or do you have some sense that there is something more? And if you do, have other people had this exact same sense? And if others have had this sense, did those people ever talk about it? And if they talked about it, did they ever write some things down about it? And there are some things that millions and millions of people have found helpful and inspiring and liberating. If there was something like that, would you be interested? Would you be interested in the words of people who have said, actually, there's something more. And it's grounded in history. And it's shaped the way people have thought. Would you be interested in exploring that? This, for us at Sanctuary, is one way we really look at the scriptures. It's a helpful way for us to go, yeah, we turn back to this document because there's something in there. And there's something in this Easter story that awakens our hearts to something more. So all that said, here's a transition for you. How many people have read the book Little Prince? Anybody? A few of you? Sweet. see what a brilliant crowd. So at the age, if you're familiar, just a quick reminder, at age six, Little Prince... Uh, who mag- has a magnificent career as an artist. And when the adults come around him, misunderstanding right, his drawings, this is what Little Prince said. Grown-ups never understand anything by themselves, he laments. And it is exhausting for children to have to provide explanations over and over again. The Little Prince is right. As we age, we lose the ability to imagine. In fact... Brain imaging studies actually suggest that imagination loss is linked to memory loss. Uh, There's a Harvard researcher, Donna Rose, and she says this, Our theory of how one puts together a future event is that you take bits of information from past events and you kind of recombine those and integrate them into some new scenario that hasn't happened before. In other words, we struggle to imagine. We struggle to imagine because we actually struggle to remember. Our ability to remember affects our ability to imagine, and by imagine, I simply mean to envision the future, to envision the future, to put together what on earth is happening, what this next situation could look like, to see the possibilities in front of us. For example, if we remember, if we frequently remember the events of our of our life, if we remember pivotal moments that have happened, we notice how that shapes us. If I continue to remember how I felt. The first time I kissed my wife, if I if I if that memory, I, I continue to go back to it and revisit it. That actually shapes deeply how I see the future. When I remember way back when I was in love, you know, just just kidding, honey. If I've only been married three years. <laughs> Right? But when I hold on to those first feelings of butterflies, there's something in me that actually reorients my view. It helps me make sense of the possibilities of the future. It rekindles my imagination for what we can be as a couple. My wife and I started doing this thing. We call it a redemptive calendar. I've shared this with some of you. Uh, When we have a really pivotal event happen in our life, we put it into our phone. And we have the alarm go off to remind us of this event. We put it into our calendar on our phone. And so the the calendar goes off a year later. So we've had moments where we're like sitting, we're going out, we're having a meal, and all of a sudden like, ding. And I look at the phone, I'm like, what Like, was this? We killed that cat, and it, we celebrated how good it was to kill the cat. No, <laughs> just kidding. You know, we, th- th- there's a job promotion. There was, a, th- there was a, a really just amazing experience of like healing in a friend's life. There was a a moment of just liberation. There was just a total win in this department. We moved into the new place. We're trying to do a better job in our household of marking the time. Because one reason is we've recognized that when we remember, it actually shapes the future. It causes us to be able to envision. This is why we celebrate holidays like Good Friday and Easter. The cross and the resurrection are dates that we rally around. We hold fast to because they startle us. They startle us, right? One of the quotes that was on some of our like, promo materials for the service was this quote from Einstein. He just says, the luminous figure of Jesus. Like how, he just talks about how can your heart not stop? How can you not pay attention to the person of Jesus? So even those who've had a hard time making sense of who Jesus is, Gandhi, right? Just trying to wrestle with there's just something about this. And then you find that these people build in tradition, that they continue to reference these powerful events that have happened or these powerful events that people celebrate and allow that to shape how they see the future. Our ability to remember affects our ability to imagine. Second big idea I want to talk about is ideas have consequences. Ideas have consequences. In, uh, I've been doing a lot of reading. This is not really cheery for Easter morning, I know. But I've been doing a lot of reading recently on the Holocaust. What happened in Germany and how how did a whole nation and a whole people get to that point? And there's something really interesting. Uh, a long backstory on this particular writer, but someone who experienced a lot of this tragedy from the inside, who experience, or from the outside, I'm sorry, experienced this from the German side. Uh, he says this in trying to make sense of how Germany got to the place that it got. He says, quote, I am absolutely convinced that the gas chambers of Auschwitz, Treblinka, and Medenek were ultimately prepared not in some ministry or other in Berlin. It wasn't just in the government propaganda, but rather at the desks and in the lecture halls of nihilistic scientists and philosophers. Ideas have consequences. People's behavior, good or bad, doesn't come from nowhere. It comes from prevailing views of reality that take root in the mind and they bring forth goodness or evil. The idea, and most of you have, a, have a, probably an understanding that everybody has inerrant human worth. All right? How many people believe that? Everybody has some inerrant good in them, some, some human worth. All right, not all of you. Some of you are like, no, people are wretched. <laughs> just value. Like, people just have value. All right? For those of you who hold to this, you know, basic human rights, UN, never mind. <laughs> Everyone should have raised their hand, I'm just saying. We, I clearly need to give a different sermon right now. <laughs> that idea comes from Judeo-Christian thought. That's where it comes from. I just finished reading a, a French f- uh, philosopher's take on sort of ethics. This is a secular uh, writer who has no Christian background at all. He says, oh yeah, the whole idea of innate human rights of loving someone, of this sort of anti-human uh, sort of progression, uh, kind of the, the strong-eat-the-weak mentality, the fact that that's not true and that people have an worth, no matter where they are, that's a, that's a, that's a Christian thought. It's a Jewish Christian thought. So those ideas actually have consequences. They've actually shaped how a body like the UN, how our Declaration of Independence, how we see each other, ideas actually reap consequences, especially ones that are, are powerful for good or for bad. Hope and love do not come from nowhere. They grow out of ideas about reality that are, for us as followers of Jesus, they're revealed in Scripture. And these ideas, these views of reality actually stem from the actions of God. We believe they stem from these events. So with these two ideas, that ideas have consequences, and that memory breeds imagination, I wanna ask these two questions kind of hanging over as we go through the Easter account. Does remembering the cross and the resurrection, does remembering Good Friday and Easter impact your vision for tomorrow? Does it impact your vision for what happens after this service? And do the ideas formed from the events in the Bible have actual real consequences in your life? Do they actually have consequences in your life? So first thing, I wanna talk about the cross. This whole story of Easter actually begins on Good Friday. I stopped by a, an Episcopal Mass on Friday. I, needed to, I was so stressed out, and I needed to just get away, and I just sat in this chapel in a tradition uh, within Christianity that I'm, I've never really been a part of, and I just sat and took in the smells. And The priest got up, and he mentioned something. He said, there's a reason why we don't give a blessing at the end of Good Friday. It's because this story is linked. The cross and the resurrection cannot be separated. So the story of the cross, I want to address what Jesus' like kind of ramp up to what happens when he dies on the cross. The gospel accounts, in particular the the book of Matthew in the Bible, it talks in these broad overviews. Like you just kind of miss whole months. And then all of a sudden it gets to the story leading up to the, the cross and the resurrection. And then it gets really detailed. So it's sort of like floating, floating, two and a half years of ministry, and then it's like, okay, we're at a week before. And then everything gets detailed. When Jesus, when it gets to Jesus' death, we find a few things about what happens to him. In Matthew 21, he's being questioned, his integrity. In Matthew 26, 14, their intimate followers, the 12 people who have been following around everywhere, have a chance to hand him over. The people that he spent three years with, that he's poured his life into, and he is betrayed by one of them. Nowadays, no one betrays a friend, right? Matthew 26, 36, then he goes to Gethsemane. He's going to sleep. He says, hey, will you guys keep watch? His best friends, the the 12 people he has sewed into, they can't even stay awake. They're not there for them in his time of need. They're still not getting it. People are questioning his motives. His best friend has sold him out. And then in a time of need, his closest friends can't stay awake. Matthew twenty six sixty seven. he's spit on and struck and slapped. He's denied again. One of his friends denies that he ever knew him. I could go on. This is sort of the list if you were to go through the the biblical account. He's questioned, betrayed, deserted, denied, spit on, struck, slapped, mocked, stripped naked, beaten, insulted, lied about, falsely accused, condemned, crucified, bruised, rejected, hated, pierced, stared at, left in naked to die, and, of course, killed. This is the story of all the things that happened to him. (laughs) Do you know this story? So what is Jesus' response? When Jesus is up on the cross, there are two men on either side of him. One says, look, if you're the guy, if you're really the Messiah, the reason why you're up here in the first place, like get us out of here. Like he believes. He's like, just rescue us. Jesus answers him, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. These few lines, Jesus is hanging on the cross. This is the modern-day equivalent of the electric chair. Imagine three electric chairs, and they are about like it is about to get pulled. And he turns and he extends forgiveness and invitation to the gentleman sitting next to him. How else does Jesus respond? In John 19, He's up on the cross. He has nails in his feet and his hands, and he looks down and he sees his mother. And he says, "Who's gonna care for my mom?" That really got me this Easter, like reading the account, like seeing Jesus or reading about Jesus up on the cross, and just going, "Like, "Hey, hey, hey, I need someone to care for my mom, like bleeding and hurting and dying." John 21, right, this is the Jesus who spent a couple years telling his friends that this is going to happen. His actions of love and generosity, his way of helping the poor look at, at the Roman Empire and seeing something different, that what God was going to do through him and the forgiveness of sins, that he was going to go to his death. He's telling them this is coming, this is coming, this is coming. And then they deny and run. And then when Jesus is risen from the dead and he goes and meets them, you expect what? Would you be pissed? Anyone? All my friends deserted me. I just pulled like the most epic move of all time. Died. Back up. This is what you just did when he stepped out of the tomb. He was like hot stepper. And then he did the Dougie and then he walked. No. He goes to meet his friends and he has breakfast with them. He's like, anybody got any fish? That's his move. This is important to pay attention to, the people who had denied him and deserted him. Jesus has choices of how he's going to react. When he's up on the cross, when he's being spit at, he knows what it was to be betrayed and hurt. He has choices, and he rises from the dead, and how he responds is huge. In response to all of this, some of the earliest writers, they looked at these events, and they said, there are some ideas that have some serious consequences about what has just happened. One writer says he was tempted in all the same ways as us, except he doesn't give in. Jesus tells his disciples that I have told you these things so that in me you will have peace. He says, in this world you're going to have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Apparently, in the cross and in the resurrection, there is a new way the universe works. One writer says the cross is God's way of saying there is a new way that the universe operates. It is not like it used to be. And we're told in scripture that Jesus is that way, is that design. Apparently evil has been overcome. Apparently uh, Jesus has made, one writer says, made a spectacle of all the powers and brokenness. Right? He, he sort of made, he, he, he put them on display for what they were, the Roman Empire. He put the power brokers on display. Which is a funny thing to say because if you look at the account, it looks like God has lost He's hanging on the cross. But if you can do the worst possible thing to someone and they still live, then who has been made a spectacle? You ever been embarrassed by someone's love? You ever been like so embarrassed the way someone like loved you because like you knew that you deserved like the worst response ever? Ever met someone who didn't have to win by cutting someone else down? These are like fractions of what we see on the cross. The victory over death. I recount the cross because our memory is linked to imagination. When we remember what Jesus has done and how Jesus responds to evil, when we remember the cross, we can imagine a future where love doesn't fail. We can envision in our daily routine the fact that love conquers all. You didn't respond with road rage. You reached out with love. You tried to make peace. You didn't lash out. You didn't get angry. No matter what the circumstances, the the ability to be able to remember what Christ has done and how Christ responds. We remember the words of scripture that love never fails. It actually always wins. It conquers. Unfailing love means a love that, right? It doesn't ever fail. This is, is the response we see Jesus give over and over. And when we remember this, it actually is deeply tied to our imagination of how we see every moment. The more and more we remember, the more and more we hold fast to Good Friday, the more it shifts and changes how we envision the future. And our second thing, ideas, right, have consequences. Jesus has overcome the world It means sacrificial love, like we see on the cross, will win over everything. The idea that love does not lose changes our view of revenge and gossip and slander. Our understanding as Christians of what happened on the cross is that we don't have to earn our way to God's salvation. There's nothing we have to do to get right with God, He has done everything, it is all grace. You just simply accept the fact that we are loved. Accept that, trust that, and then lean into it. Remember that, because those ideas, the things that these writers flowed from this event, they have consequences. Our memory of what's happened here leads to an unbelievable new and fresh and beautiful life. The cross. Easter. 1 Corinthians 15. The writer Paul says this about what's happened on Easter. He says for what I received I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time most of whom are still living. So first off Paul says look if you have any questions you can actually talk to some people they saw him. A, human, a person died and rose again. That's a bold claim. He says you can actually go talk to them. They're, they're actually still around. We're actually told that many people doubted. Which if you're going to try to start some fake like, propaganda thing, like if you have that kind of view of the Bible, you don't include details like, yeah, a lot of people doubted. A lot of people didn't believe that he had risen. You don't do that. You say everyone believed and it was awesome. These are just helpful ways we can help engage the story. He says, look, but there were people around that you could talk to. He goes on, now explaining this event happened. He says, so what are some of the ideas that flow from this? How do we understand about how, why this has happened and how this affects us? He says, the Messiah has been raised, that's Jesus, from the dead, as the first fruits of all who have fallen asleep. Now, we don't live in an agricultural society, or most of us don't, but the first fruits... This is actually a really powerful image. At the beginning of a harvest, these were the first fruits. The first things that have come from the harvest that you would go and you would offer. Whether it was offering to the family or if you were a a good Jew, you offer it to the temple. You would give the the first thing. Because you you would actually, it was a sign that there was more to come. When the first fruits come, like all right, our our first, I remember, man, I love summer. I'm so excited that it is going to show up in maybe a year from now. Dude, this winter has been the worst. Has it not? And if you just basically give up on ever seeing the sun again. Yeah. So in the summer, um, tomatoes, that first tomato that ripens. You know what I'm talking about? I'm preaching now. You pull that tomato out, right? You don't even wash it. You just like you eat it like an apple. And it flows That No, I don't know. <laughs> That first fruit is a sign that there's going to be more coming. That there's more to come. That this is just the beginning. And so it is with Jesus. He's saying, look, Jesus is the first fruits of what is breaking forth in this world. That one, we are all going to be able to live in eternity with him. To simply just just believe, trust that God has done this. And that actually the new, the, the kingdom of God, the way of Jesus, the way of peace, this sacrificial, unfeeling, unfailing love, this ultimate image of heaven that we have in the Christian story has actually zoomed back into the present and begun with Jesus. This is the first fruits. The first writers had faith that they could actually join with God in this moment. This event has something to do with everything. The implications of this first fruit thing, Paul goes on in this passage and says, death is not what it used to be. He says, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? That's pretty bold. I mean, that is the ultimate sting of all of our lives, right? It makes, it le- it's the great leveler. It reminds us of, of where our lives are superficial when we're confronted with death. Many of you know this who are from the West Side. We, we lost a brother in the artist community recently, and it, it just kind of reorients you. And Paul is saying, actually, that sting, there's something in Easter that says, actually, in Christ, the sting is gone. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God, he gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. In Jesus, you can enter into this new life. In Jesus, there is no fear in death. In Jesus, there is hope beyond death. In Jesus, you can live that fearless life, that life of heaven now and partner with God now. This is powerful. This idea that has flowed from this event has major consequences. The psychology alone, even if you're not a follower of Jesus or you have a real hard time with this stuff, the psychology is overwhelming. Uh, Daniel Lighty says this uh, in the book called The Fear Under Every Fear. He says this about uh, generative death anxiety. This is not a a Christian source. The generative death anxiety. According to this theory, it is the ability to repress from consciousness the fact of our own endangerments, extreme vulnerability and mortal nature that is the very foundation of human psychological existence. This theory suggests quite plausibly that the energy cooking away in the unconscious, is not primarily sexually or aggressive urges. They're not accumulative or mimetic, uh, nor even the will to power. These are all different theories about what's at our core. They, these are each rather culturally specific manifestations of a deeper energy, the energy of repressed uh, mortality anxiety. I know it's way too early in the morning for words like that. He's basically saying, making an argument from a psychological standpoint that the core thing that you were driven by is a fear of death and you're not aware of it because you have to shove it down because you wouldn't be able to live in light of the fact that you're not promised to even get out of this building all right tomorrow. Today. (laughs) You're trapped. (laughs) This is all a ruse. The first writers are just simply saying, I've given my life to, to, to a, a place of absolute fearlessness in light of death because I actually believe that there is a new life after this. I, have, I don't need to fear death. I'm going to live in light of that. I have given my life to someone who fears nothing. There's a fact, Easter. There are ideas that flow from it, and there are consequences that follow. We can't go right back to fearing finances, to fearing the future, to fearing parents, to, f- to having overwhelming anxiety in light of this. Those things are hard and we work into those things. I'm not acting like, just trust Easter and all goes away. But the more we lean into that belief and actually trust it to be true, it does a number on your anxiety. It does a number on your fear and it does a number on your reactions. You die to fear. To live the resurrection is to put fear where it belongs. Our memory is linked to our imagination. If we remember Easter morning, if we remember death being conquered, if we remember that Jesus is king and is with us, that he's risen from the dead and is actually with us, it is easy to envision, to imagine what life is to look like, that God is at work in the world. To say that Jesus is alive, that he is running the world, has serious implications it changes our view of the future. And it makes no sense to many, many people that Jesus is in charge of the world. Most people look at the continuation of violence and deceit and chaos over the last 2,000 years and say it's ridiculous to say that Jesus is in charge, that Jesus has risen and is with us in some way. But when we read the accounts of Jesus' life, we actually get a glimpse of what he's up to. This is actually what he promised. We see that Jesus... Wants to run the way that he wants to run the world is by calling people to be peacemakers, gentle, lowly, and hungry for justice. When God wants to change the world, he doesn't send in the tanks, he sends in the meek, the pure in heart, those who weep for the world's sorrows and ache for its wrongs. He sends in the people who live in response to the cross, who love sacrificially with no fear. And by the time the systems of power notice what's going on, Jesus' followers have set up schools and hospitals and they have fed the hungry and cared for the orphans and declared that Jesus is Lord and welcomed people into a relationship with the God of the universe. That's what the church, when it's being true, is known for. That's what the early church is just like uh, just, it's celebrated for. The early church remembered that he had risen, that death had no sting, and that a new world is beginning now. They realized the events of the empty tomb. They held fast to them. That these, were, these ideas about what was happening in the world had real life consequences for how they were to live. I close with this. The writer Tim Keller says... He reminds us actually uh, that it was not enough to believe in the historicity of Jesus and his resurrection. He says, You can't believe in a naked fact and not change your life. Jesus says, I am with you always. The fact that Jesus is with us always has consequences, that is a life changer. And when you remember the good news of God's grace, that you are loved exactly where you're at in all your brokenness and all of your failure and all of your joy and all of your gifts and all of your, in all of it, right where you are right now, it, it changes. When we remember that, it helps us envision and imagine a new future. You envision an entirely different set of circumstances, one filled with hope and possibility because the God of the universe is with you. When you say yes to Jesus, he comes into your life and you become the resurrection. In both Easter and in Good Friday, in both the cross and the empty tomb, we meet grace. We meet this grace, this unmerited favor. So, a few questions as I welcome the band up here and we close. How open minded are you? It's cool if you're not, I'm just wondering. <laughs> How open minded are you? What's possible? Is there new creation bursting forth in the midst of this one? Have you had that sense? Have you felt it? There's actually a way things are supposed to be. When you hear these stories and accounts, you go, oh my gosh to embody that. The thing is, is Jesus doesn't let us get away with just a couple good ideas. Jesus doesn't let us get away with just having a few ideas to having a philosophical worldview. He actually says, trust me. Trust that I am Lord, that I am actually with you. These events didn't, they, these, these ideas didn't come out of nowhere. They were born in the real life and death and resurrection of Jesus. How open are you? What's possible? Did something happen that changes everything? Is the tomb empty? What happens if we actually live like this is true? What does the story have to do with your heart? Is Jesus alive? And will we respond to the grace of Good Friday and the grace of Easter? To the grace of Good Friday is that we are loved where we're at and the grace of Easter is that there is mission before us. The grace of Easter is, is, that, is that we actually have eternal life in him. The grace of Easter is death has lost its sting. The, the, the grace of Easter is actually we don't need to worry about being at the center of the universe because we have a God who desires us to be fully alive in him. He is the first fruits. He's that first offering, that, that first tomato with the promise of so many more to come. We we are the tomatoes. I can't end on that note. <laughs> Thought I had it. I don't want to get y'all drummed up on some sort of like emotional tilt. I want us to simply reflect on on God's grace on the grace of Easter. Do these ideas truly have consequences? And for those of you who are here Christians, do you uh, Are you holding fast to the memory, to the reality of your own rescue, to the truth of Jesus being with you and Lord, and allowing that to shape and change your future? Let me pray for us. Lord, um, it's sweet... (coughs) We, we believe you're here and uh, we believe you're actually working right now. And so for those who, um, who want to say yes to Jesus, for those who, who this is like a moment in their life, maybe for the first time where they just feel like this weird little crack in the pavement, this little crack in the wall that the light's getting in, and I pray you give us the strength to just respond, to be open to you, pray that everything, everything that could be in the way between us and you, us and truth, would fall. And we would be open, Lord, and that you would give us a memory and that you would reveal to us, Lord, the implications for us now in this moment of a love that conquers all and of the defeating of death. In your name. Lord, we reflect. Amen.